Hello and welcome to A History of the United States, episode 13, The New Aristocracy. Remember that this is a listener-supported podcast. If you enjoy the show and would like to support it, then please consider signing up for membership. It only costs $5 per month and allows me to, well, do this. In addition to that, you also get access to exclusive membership episodes. You can do that by going to the website thehistoryofpodcast.com, and clicking on the PayPal subscription button. James I died. So began the reign of Charles I. We're not covering British history here. I am Jamie Redfern, not Jamie Jeffers after all, whose British history podcast I fully recommend, by the way. But we are the history of the United States, so I don't want to say too much about Charles, but we do need to say something. Charles was never supposed to be king. He was the second son of King James, six years younger than his older brother Henry. Charles was born in 1600, and would have spent his early years in his brother's shadow. Everyone was excited about Henry, who was involved with politics from a young age. He was an early backer of the Virginia Company, and supported English colonisation efforts. Henry's death in 1612 was a national tragedy, and it pushed Charles into the public eye, a place he never really wanted to be. He would gain his political education as the Thirty Years' War began to develop across Europe. I'm not going to cover that war right now, mostly because I think it would take several hours of talking to get through it. It's kind of important in what's going on, though, and in understanding the various diplomatic power plays throughout the middle of the 17th century, and so I expect I'm going to have to work it in somehow, but eh, that's future Jamie's problem. He's a smart guy, I'm sure he'll think of something. The very, very, very simple version is that Europe had a war between its Catholic and Protestant countries. As England was a Protestant country, this led to some hostile views of Catholics particularly Charles's wife, who was a Bourbon of France. Charles's reign would be dominated by religious animosity and accusations that he was too Catholic by the Reformed churches, such as the Puritans, and he also forced Anglican theology on the Scots, which really annoyed them, and he also believed in the divine right of kings, which really annoyed Parliament. He wasn't England's most popular king, which I guess is why we killed him. Oops, spoiler alert. So, James began to grow ill, and Charles took an increasingly important role in governance, becoming king when his father died in March 1625, at the age of 24. This is doubly important for us, since, as you'll recall from last time, the Virginia Company had been abolished, and Virginia was now under the direct control of the Crown, But before we get too far into things, I want to make it clear that the next few episodes are not a sign of things to come. As America gets bigger, and as we get closer to the modern day, the narrative is bound to slow down. This will be the real good stuff, we'll take our time covering everything, but we sort of need to fast forward through some stuff to get there. What I'm saying is that in terms of scholarship and material I have access to when writing this narrative... There is a focus on the first few years, and then as the colony gets bigger, there are fewer details. 
This is why when we got to 1610, we started covering multiple years every episode when previously we'd only been getting through a few months. After 1625, the problem gets a lot worse. There are events of note, but for the most part, Virginia just quietly got on with expanding. There comes a point when it becomes big enough that we can begin dealing with details again, but that is the point when we can begin to deal with colonial America. That point is around 1675. That's the point where I can begin to deal with something starting to resemble the United States. This is my way of saying that we're going to deal with about 50 years of history very quickly, but don't worry, we'll be back to our much slower detailed plod through history very soon. So, the colony was now under the control of the Crown, things didn't immediately change for Virginia. Wyatt was kept on as governor, although the council was replaced. The General Assembly was not mentioned. What ensued was about ten years of legal confusion. In 1625, the Virginians sent a petition to Charles asking to keep their legislature. But for someone as obsessed with the divine right of kings as Charles, it shouldn't come as any surprise that he ignored the appeals. There were attempts by the governors to bring back the assembly, and it did occasionally meet. From 1629, it was decided that it would still meet annually. It, however, had no legal position. It had no constitutional authority. This changed when Charles finally relented in 1639. This was no small achievement, when you bear in mind the conflict Charles was having with Parliament. Charles did, however, make sure that it was known that the Assembly was only allowed to exist because of royal favour, not because of some right of the settlers. It was also aristocratic in nature. It was created as an instrument to reflect the views of the plantation owners and to give them a say in how Virginia was governed not so that your average commoner could share their views. But still, it was a source of democratic institution that, constitutionally, had to meet annually. That's important. Very early on, the House of Burgesses began to make claims about its sovereignty, such as that it was the only body in the colony that had the right to levy taxes. It continually reinforced this claim, In 1629, for instance, it levied a tobacco tax, but it was a poll tax in which the rich paid just as much as the poor. This wasn't a real democratic institution, although popular outcry against such an unfair system did mean that the tax was repealed in the 1640s. This was just a sign of the social revolution that was happening in Virginia. The old English aristocracy didn't travel to the new world. This new aristocracy was made up of the self-made merchant class that had gotten into the tobacco industry early by setting up large plantations to be worked by the indentured servants who had travelled to Virginia in their thousands only to die in their thousands. Once the new aristocracy gained access to political power through the House of Burgesses, it began securing it and truly creating an oligarchy. Footnote. I'm going to use aristocracy and oligarchy interchangeably, as this is how they're used by most people. 
but I am a classicist where these words have more specific meanings. You see, these words are Greek. I love Greek, because when you want to make a word, you can just mash all the words together. For instance, there is the word philos, which means friend or love, and sophia, which means wisdom. If you mash them together, you get philosophia, the love of wisdom, philosophy. Now, let's bring this logic into political jargon. One of the most famous Greek inventions is democracy. This is just two other words mashed together. Demos, people, and kratos, a word which is typically translated as power, but means something closer to sovereignty. Mash them together, and you get demokratia, the rule of the people. The opposite of democracy is oligarchy. This comes from oligos, meaning few, and arko, a verb which means I rule. So oligarchy means the rule of the few. This arko stem also combines with monos, one, to get monarchy, the rule of one person. So oligarchy, the rule of the few, means something different from aristocratia, which is the same kratos ending as demokratia, power, but instead of the power of the demos, it is the power of the aristos, which means best. Aristocracy means the rule of the best. This is the sense you would use the word when dealing with 7th century BC Greek history, but we're not. We're dealing with 17th century American history, so I'm going to use aristocracy to mean the wealthy and powerful few, even though it would make my Greek history friends shudder. Sorry guys, but I'm getting distracted. But stay on topic, Jamie. Stay on topic. So, once it used the powers it gained from the existence of the House of Burgesses, Virginia developed an aristocracy. It's noteworthy that inequality made its way into the colony with such speed, but the creation of a political class allowed the colony to reach political maturity with remarkable speed. For the first few hundred years of America, Virginia was its heart. It was the most important state. The pre-eminent status could be explained because it was the first US colony, but the New England colony was set up only 13 years later, in 1620. New York came to existence in 1621, New Hampshire in 1623, Maine in 1624, Maryland in 1634, and Connecticut in 1635. By this point in our narrative, there were seven colonies. Considering independence wouldn't be achieved for another 150 years, how much difference could a 10-year head start make? Not much. What made Virginia stand out was its political maturity. We'll have much more to say about this later, but... When America became independent, it would be led by one of the Virginian aristocrats, George Washington himself. I'm not saying that this aristocracy was anything to equal the European nobility. It would take a hundred years for that to happen. This was on a much smaller scale. Virginian history in the 1630s centres mostly on political clashes between the governors and the assembly. Wyatt remained as governor until 1626, when he was replaced by Yeardley 
for a second term as governor. In 1628, Sir John Harvey took office, and he spent the next ten years embroiled in such clashes which came to a head in 1635, due to popular outrage at a decision to give Kent Island to the recently formed colony of Maryland. The Assembly impeached Harvey, who was forced to flee to England, where he was restored by royal decree. While the leadership squabbled, for the most part, life was peaceful. The Powhatan Confederacy, while not destroyed, was for the moment no longer a serious threat. But defence wasn't abandoned. Harvey had constructed a four-mile-long palisade between the James and York rivers as a defence. Defences were also made for the livestock, crops were diversified, so that the colony wasn't as reliant on tobacco, although tobacco was still the main industry of the colony. I've mentioned before the statistical growth of tobacco, that Rolf sent back four barrels in 1614, and that by 1619 this has increased to about £50,000, give or take. Now, to put that statistic into perspective, in 1639, Virginia produced £1.5 million of tobacco. Yes, you heard me correctly. That wasn't a typo. Your pairing isn't going. £1.5 million of tobacco. It doesn't take an expert in economics to know that this flooded the market. Really, this changed the global tobacco market. Back before the settlement of Jamestown, it cost several pounds sterling per imperial pound of tobacco. By 1619, this had dropped to three shillings per pound of tobacco, and by 1639, it was at a mere three pence a pound. The old imperial currency system had four farthings in a penny, 12 pence in a shilling, 20 shillings in a pound. Pence is the plural of penny. In 1639, the price of tobacco was 160 times lower than it was 30 years previously. Yeah, that's a pretty big change. It's a pretty simple economic cycle. Higher production drops prices, so manufacturers need to increase production to maintain revenue, which drops prices even further. The story of Virginia is in a lot of ways the story of tobacco. The wealth created by tobacco was enough to keep the colony going in its early years. These new riches gave the plantation owners a say in governance of their colony, creating the most democratic body to exist in colonial America, which led to the political sophistication which would define Virginia from the other colonies. This much we've discussed, but there is more too. The rapid growth of the colony has its heart in tobacco. You see... While it is very easy to grow, tobacco exhausts the soil. It will wear out completely in seven years. This led the plantation owners to constantly need new soil and saw them push up the James and York rivers. In 1634, the colony had to have its administrative map redrawn, and eight shires, later known as counties, were created. Henrico, Charles City... James City, Warwick River, Charles River, Ross Elizabeth City, and Aramac. 
The need for larger estates, which would be worked cheaply, led to the mass movement of the indentured servants. Following the 1622 Powhatan Uprising, the colony was back down in the hundreds in terms of settlers, but this growth picked up. In 1635, it was at around 5,000, a figure which was up to 10,000 by 1639. Farming the tobacco with the indentured servants wasn't cheap enough, and while other colonies were placed in New England, the creation of Maryland in 1634 was a threat to Virginia. The desire for cheap work to cut costs for growing tobacco would, in following decades, lead to the growth of slavery in the region. Virginia's eventual doom was also in the tobacco, the desire for new arable land led to Virginia's push westwards, but once new states were created, it would run out of land to plant tobacco, leading it to fade from the national stage in the 19th century. But we're a really long, long way away from that. This brings to a close what has been a pretty strange episode, if I'm honest. I started work on this episode thinking there would be lots of information that I could find in the 1620s, and then I really couldn't find anything and thought that we'd just jump to 1675 in one episode, but we've cobbled something together, and we have a picture of what Virginia was like as it was poised to delve into the 1640s. If you've enjoyed this for some reason, then you can find more online. You can like us on various social media, such as Twitter, at HistoryJamie, and Facebook, facebook.com forward slash thehistoryofpodcast. You can also send me an email, thehistoryofpodcast at gmail.com, and you can find everything, including how to sign up for membership, at the website, thehistoryofpodcast.com. I'll see you in two days. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 